0: welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. I'm your host, Dan Seed, from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. This month we are joined by Dr. Rodney Rohde making his third appearance on the program. He is the first three-time guest on the show. Dr. Rohde is a professor in the College of Health Professions and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Sciences program here at Texas State. Dr. Rohde is an expert on infectious disease. Dr. Rody is joining us to discuss monkeypox, which, while the U.S. recently experienced its first death from the disease, cases in the states did fall by 40 percent from the middle to the end of August. Dr. Rody, thank you so much for joining us once again.
1: Thanks, Dan. It's an honor and a privilege to join you. I look forward to talking to you guys and- today.
0: And it's our privilege, too, because you always come with some really interesting stuff, insightful stuff from the science background that I think a lot of the population isn't aware of or things that we don't think about or even talk about in general media in this country. So, again, we are talking about monkeypox, and and that was really kind of a big topic in the spring and summer. But just to refresh our audience here, if you could, what is monkeypox, its symptoms, effects on humans? how it can be contracted, give us that overview. Cause again, it's one of those things that was with us and then I feel like it just disappeared from consciousness. Yeah,
1: that's a great way to start off. Just some context around monkeypox the virus. So this virus actually comes from a family called poxviridae, uh, which is in a group of orthopox viruses. And, and I think what really happened and early on back in May when that first case kind of popped into the United States was that you started seeing headlines and people talking about this particular virus, monkeypox virus, being related to, or what I would call a cousin to smallpox virus. And of course that raises some quick eyebrows when you hear anything about smallpox, which has been eradicated for, I guess, 40 or 50 years now. Smallpox was a killer, uh, a big killer. And we were able to eradicate that um, virus because humans were sole reservoirs. So once you got all the humans vaccinated, it went away. So that was a good thing. But monkeypox is actually not a new disease. It's been around actually for quite some time. Uh, it's been around at least from the standpoint of science. It was first discovered in 1958 in a group of monkeys that were uh, actually research monkeys in the DRC of Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And over time, you know that that kind of percolated in that part of the world. It was endemic. It's still endemic in that part of the world. And really, the first time we saw it in um, people was uh, 1970 that was the first human case and since then we've seen multiple cases in animals and people and and primarily in the african continent and then we have had incursions of it though we have seen it in the us uh, and other countries typically through travel so people go over and come back or through some type of animal exposure and so interestingly the term monkeypox itself is kind of a misnomer. I like to tell people that really, like most things, it got named from the first time it got spotted in monkeys back in the 50s. But in reality, monkeys are not a good reservoir. It doesn't stay in monkeys. It probably should be named rodent pox because primarily we see it in different types of animals like that. And in fact, right before I came to Texas State, or right around the time I came to Texas State in 2002, when I was still with the Department of Health in Austin and doing some CDC work, we actually had an incursion of this in 03 with about 70 people in the United States that fell ill. And what happened was people were handling prairie dogs, which we have in the United States. Those prairie dogs have been co-housed or cohabitated with infected Gambian pouched rats that were imported from Ghana. And so those animals actually had it. Nobody really knew about it, kind of an incubatory stage. And so prairie dogs ended up getting it. People got it. But long story short, we got ahead of that. Uh, There was no secondary transmission from person to person. So again, not a new virus. We've actually known a lot about it. And and really, that's something as we talk about today is, is important from the standpoint of kind of a COVID comparison, because we know this virus, uh, we've been studying it for 50 or 60 years. We had vaccines. Uh, we even had an experimental uh, therapeutic and we kind of knew how to deal with it. Uh, and so we can kind of follow up with some of those as we move along
0: to follow up on that a point that you made which again comparing the two because that's kind of a lot of what I want to talk about is this mindset that we're in with covid and now this thing comes in and we all have that freak out moment when we hear right. this new thing you mentioned that you know it's more accurately rodent pox kind of harkens back to the idea of the spanish flu right like a misnomer in terms of how it how it originated or where it originated and it can Spiral from there, I guess. But when we look right, we look at this disease. We we did have a case here on our campus the first week of class or so, maybe the, the week before class started, but it's been quiet since, kind of in line with, like I mentioned, that fall that we saw in August in overall cases in the United States. Where are we now nationally in terms of numbers, spread? And I guess, you know, depending on where we are. That drop that we had in August—any right. ideas why the number of cases fell so drastically in a relatively short amount of time?
1: Sure. So let's let's uh, let's do the numbers. That's a great place to start. So, I did a quick review this morning just to be accurate for today, as of this particular date, September twentieth of two thousand and twenty-two. Globally, we have about sixty-two thousand cases in about 104 locations. Uh, What's interesting about that is 97 of those locations are in non-endemic areas. In other words, it's not normal to see monkeypox, including the U.S. Mm -hmm. When you look at the United States specifically, there's about, we're approaching 24,000 cases as of today, all 50 states, all territories. If you're looking at Texas, we're just over 2,000 cases and the hottest state is California. Again, keep in mind population centers and things like that. And there's 20 deaths globally, and we have had one US death in Texas actually, in Harris County, a severely immunocompromised individual. Uh, So it's actually rare to cause mortality. Um, Didn't really mention that earlier, but this particular strain, the the West African clade is around one percent mortality. It's actually a little lower than one percent historically, so it's not a, you know, it's not a severely killing virus like you might see with others. And so that was a good thing. What I would like to think, and I'm, you know, pretty sure of this just based on the the virus and the characteristics that's associated with it, is that some of the lessons we learned with COVID, uh, getting ahead of the communication strategy getting that stockpile of vaccine remember we had it so again comparing it to COVID's it's a little difficult because COVID, we had nothing in the toolbox but we did have a couple of vaccines that were available to us so by getting that out and then a really even important i think for the who and health and human services here in the united states to go ahead and declare it a public health emergency they didn't declare it a pandemic it's it's kind of a, a gray area of how you kind of determine that, uh, but because it wasn't as severe, it wasn't killing you know thousands and thousands of people daily, they kept it at an emergency. But what that did, Dan, was it opened up stockpiles. It basically cut down a bunch of red tape and bureaucratic hurdles. And so you saw vaccines getting out to at least high risk groups. It certainly allowed for contact tracing and isolation to start occurring quickly. And I, th- I think we learned some things. And when you're comparing it to COVID again, I, I do like to make this comparison for the public because it's really critical. It's apples and oranges from a virology standpoint. SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID, is a rapidly mutating RNA virus. It's just a pain. It's a diabolical thing that just mutates like crazy. Hence the, the headache of us trying to stay on top of it get the vaccine you know changing vaccines it seems like happening every four or five six months driving people crazy with that but that's the virus that's an rna virus they're a nightmare dna virus is like monkeypox, much slower Uh, they don't mute it does mutate but it doesn't mutate like an rna virus it's got a low mortality rate it takes really longer contact times with close skin-to-skin contact it's not an aerosolized virus like covid is so you know in many ways we knew a lot and and if it gets right down to it we got a little lucky uh, that it was monkeypox because this is a virus that is kind of slow it's kind of inefficient it's nothing like covid was and so if we do contact tracing if we get testing which we're doing better this time and we get people vaccinated you should see declines. And and so I'm pleased that we're seeing those really rapid declines across the globe. We've also seen 20 to 25% reduction in the U.S. And I think we'll continue to see that if we're transparent and people follow the rules and we kind of stay on top of that, you know, clear education about what to do.
0: A couple of the things that you brought up in that answer questions that I had and I want to follow up that the last time that we had you on Those of you that listen regularly and those of you that don't, it was November of 2020, seven months or so or eight months into what we consider the pandemic in the United States. And one of the big things that we talked about was the need for better health literacy and health information campaigns. And you touched on the idea that the rollout was better and they were able to communicate with affected populations, so to speak, better this time to get all that going. Was there anything about the way that they went about handling this that struck you as maybe that some lessons had been learned from COVID and what we can then do going forward when these things pop up again to keep that progress going?
1: You you never want to wish for something to happen like monkeypox, but if something is going to happen, uh, this is kind of a scenario where, again, kind of lucky and kind of a good thing because we did know about it and we had some tools already. But coming on the hills, uh, you know, the pandemic's not over with COVID, but it's certainly tailing off now. We're seeing, you know, things decline and decline, and you're hearing leaders around the world starting to declare that we're th- we're within sight anyway of the end. But this is a nice quick alarm for the world to kind of remember that infectious agents do not go away. They're gonna show up on our shores regularly. Uh, especially now with with global travel and people being able to move around like they do but the lessons learned i think the primary lessons learned were quick decisions get that information out as soon as possible and then stick to it with less red tape right so again kind of apples and oranges but you can see how some of the infrastructure helped so having having ideas about how to distribute and get vaccine out quickly to different states, even prioritizing high-risk states, higher, hotter states that were showing more monkeypox cases, New York, California, certain things like that, to get those vaccine doses into those places right away and start distributing them and getting that information out. Again, were there hiccups? There's always going to be hiccups with public health emergencies or any natural disaster type of, of emergency, but the idea is that you have a plan, you learn lessons. And and really it's a military kind of stance. You have to be able to change and adapt in the moment. And people will judge you right and wrong every time, but you get better. You get better by making mistakes. And that's certainly what happened. Again, a little lucky this time because we didn't have to develop brand new tests. We had them. We had to, we had to ramp up. That's the lesson we learned from COVID. We we knew better about how to ramp up and get that out quicker. Right. Vaccines we had. You know we didn't have to develop a vaccine but we did learn how to get it out quicker same with therapeutics and then i think just making decisions and declaring it a public health emergency some people didn't like that but in many ways it i think was a smart decision because it opened up doors it got everybody's attention uh, in the world even though we're sick of the pandemic it did kind of re how often this could happen. And it it kind of caught people by surprise. And so in some ways, it was kind of a, a good immediate wake-up call when we were kind of slowing down.
0: With that said, too, that, you know, I mean, throughout the years, there have been diseases that have come to the United States, right? I think back to Ebola, the freak out over Ebola. Right. MERS, MERS was a big one, right? But More often than not, when you're talking about these kind of viruses that have been identified, that have been studied, the the public health response to them is rather swift. Like, this is the norm, right? COVID was the abnormal one, as you said, because it was different and varied and all that. But this is more of the norm in terms of how public health normally tackles this kind of stuff, correct?
1: Yeah, you are absolutely making my heart warm, (laughs) right? I mean.
0: I'm glad you know, to hear that,
1: Rodney. Yeah, and you know, we talked about it a little bit, and I think again, for perspective, again, for someone who's been doing this for 30 years, and this is part of my look, my world. You know, this this is the type of thing I want people to kind of think about and understand is that SARS-CoV-2 was, and it still is, a novel virus, right? I mean, it's brand new. We're still we're still learning about long COVID, and there's some issues that we're still following. There's still con- there's going to be concern about it, I think, for many years, just like we. You know, we finally feel like we're kind of understanding HIV. That took 20, 30 years to really get our heads around. Everybody wants now answers. Everybody wants immediate results. That doesn't always happen when a virus is in charge. And so when you think about those kind of old foes, influenza, you know, you mentioned some of those, even Ebola. We know a lot about Ebola now. We kind of know how to handle it and those types of things. I think what the public doesn't realize is we do this all the time. You mentioned MERS the first time, SARS one you know nobody talks about it because we handled it multiple times of influenza avian influenza and other types of outbreaks and so typically we get on tops of these things and sometimes it's just luck i mean sometimes it is what it is the virus doesn't mutate a certain way it's not brand new and and we get lucky because mother nature helps us out but what the public needs to remember is that we cannot control how a virus Mutates or emerges out of the population of animals and plants and things like that. And so good sustained public health funding, public health infrastructure, public health professionals and researchers and healthcare folks are all critical pieces of our society, just like a strong military is. Again, I think I've said this before, if not with you, I have with others. I look at public health as a branch of the military. We should be looking at the microbe as an enemy and a terrorist at all times. They are absolutely more deadly than almost every foe we've ever faced on the battlefield.
0: While discussing monkeypox, to look at the cases that have happened, right? And the point that you just made is well taken, and it is one that you, that you did make in our November 2020 interview. When we look at the, the cases, the disease has disproportionately affected men who have sex with men. But yet, it's not considered an STI, correct? correct. Why is that?
1: Again, great question. And, and here's a point I want to make right now: it, it could change, right? So again, if you're a, if you're a scientist and especially one who studies viruses, you have to kind of be careful here because what's happening right now, what happened with this? So our first case in the U.S. was like May seventh of this past spring, and you know it came out of the U.K. and some other places around the world where it originated. We believe pretty strongly believe that it came out of some of these areas where MSMs, men who are having sex with men and other types of close intimate contact in these congregated areas. That's where the kind of initial rise of this occurred. And then it kind of, when those individuals left and scattered across the globe, then it became part of that behavior in other parts of the world. And so because of that close intimate contact, even in cases of sex, for example, That is skin-to-skin, abrasions can occur, and that is a definitely very likely way that it's always gonna be transmitted versus the old understood ways, which was more uh, handling animals. Perhaps it it actually can be transmitted through large respiratory droplets. It's just really uncommon because it's not aerosolized. And and it could be perhaps also through uh, handling fomites. So you have pustules, they erupt. That's the typical symptom. You have a large rash and pustules and gets in bed bedding or linen or clothing. And so those those are types of things that can happen. So what I like to tell the public right now is that it behaves like an STI, but it's not been scientifically declared an STI. Typical STI that is the primary route of transmission and it's ongoing that way. And sometimes it's the only route of transmission is through sex, sexual intercourse. This could be just close, you know, skin-to-skin hugging, for example, and and you have open sores and things like that, getting skin-to-skin or things like that. So that's why that gray area is there right now. And one other quick comment about this, because it does pop up in, in some conversation, is that I look at this as a risk stratification. Right now, we do know that it's high risk if you're in that particular group, that men who have sex with men or other types of lbgtq area that that's happening it's not the only way but that is the highest percentage right now beneath that i would say the second tier of risk is close contacts partners family members anyone who is in very close contact with that first level and then below that maybe the third and lesser level would be the general community less likely Uh, probably very small percentages of risk among kind of just the general population. So I try to put it at levels of risk. And if you're at that highest risk, then education is happening. That's important. You need to know uh, that there is a risk in those populations. You need to think about maybe vaccines if that risk is still occurring with you. Uh, If you're in the next level, that's when contact isolation gets important in quarantine because, you know, if you know someone who's positive, they're isolated and you can watch someone else who's in a close contact, that's kind of a less level. And then the general public who is not involved in that scenario really shouldn't be panicking or even alarmed at any level, but education is critical in case they see signs and symptoms and things like that. So certainly if you know, you've been in contact with a positive person, or you've traveled to some of these endemic areas or these types of gatherings, then you need to be watching your health and and paying attention.
0: And one important aspect when discussing disease, any disease really, is to to avoid stigma for those who contract the disease. And as we've just talked about, the disease disproportionately has been affecting men who have sex with men. It harkens back to the early days of HIV and AIDS. And, And you could really kind of say, The same thing for the early days of COVID when politicians here, notably former President Trump, labeled the virus the Wuhan flu, the China flu, stigmatizing that. So in terms of the education for the public, why is it important or how is it important? What are the next steps so as not to stigmatize people as those people who get that, similar to what we saw with the AIDS epidemic in in the early 1980s?
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, it's one I've been speaking to and I've written about, as you guys know, i published an article with Elsevier on um, basically an editorial around this idea. You know, I was in high school in the 80s, and that's when HIV kind of really started flourishing. And I still remember, again, I'm not going to pick on just politicians, but generally politicians and others who are talking about things like this, they labeled it the gay plague. Uh, and that's something that stuck with me even in high school. I still remember that. And now with my training and background, the ultimate answer to that is it's it's a really dangerous thing to do to label something and try to put it in the context of only this group of individuals are going to get it because dan ultimately what happens if you do that wherever you sit on any fence of beliefs is that you are you are undermining all of public health when you put it in a particular group, because now the general person might say, oh, I've got nothing to worry about, right? And that disease perpetuates, and, it, and we all know what happened with HIV. It moved into the heterosexual population very quick. It was probably already in it. Uh, okay. It was just, we were kind of targeting that particular group there, the first ones that showed it because of, of immunocompromised issues. So the same thing could happen. And I mean, you talk about a big lesson, uh, that is one we definitely, hopefully, have learned. And, and yet we still see it popping up, you know, whether it's the Wuhan flu or even something is, you know, you guys might not have heard of this, but things like Lyme disease, you know, we tend to label oh, wow. things with where they're found. Old Lyme, Connecticut is where that comes from. And, and you know, that community still feels that kind of stigma. I mean, it seems silly, but you can really hamper, you know, the means for economic de- prosper, you know, if you, if you hammer a city the leper colonies, I mean, all of these things that we've done over our history is not helpful to both people and locations because it's, you know, as you've heard me say many times, microbes just don't give a, you know, what they do, what they do, they're going to amplify, they're going to infect, they're going to cause problems and they, they just don't care who we are, what we look like, who we vote for, you know, what gender we are. It just doesn't matter.
0: And again, we're joined by Dr. Rodney Rohde, here to discuss monkeypox, an infectious disease expert who has been on our show. This is his third time, always a wealth of information and knowledge. So Dr. Rohde, since the last time that we had you on in November of 2020, you were honored as a regent's professor here at Texas State. That's the highest faculty honor in the Texas State University system. Congratulations on that honor. What does that mean to you?
1: thanks dan uh, first of all it is surreal for me you know it, it's it's an honor that when you get when you get that type of honor from colleagues and even even kind of coming out of your teaching and students and others you've done research with over a career i'm in my f- 31st year of working for the state of texas and and really the united states because i did some cdc work as well and it's almost unbelievable, I guess, in a way, it's kind of surreal because you never really look at yourself of being, you know someone who um, would get that type of title. And, and certainly the pandemic and the work that's come in the past three years uh, may have amplified that opportunity and, and I'm appreciative mm-hmm. and very proud uh, to represent Texas State in the, in the system with that title because i feel like what i've tried to do is take a really a lifetime of professional education and expertise that started here as you guys know i started uh, here in 1985 with a bachelor's degree in microbiology and moved into virology for a master's and then left for a decade and so to to be able to come back here in 02 pick up a phd and continue to do this work uh, with students with colleagues and professionals around the country and to be recognized as a subject matter expert with this type of title is just very, very honored um, and and very surreal. And so I'm very thankful and I appreciate the shout out there for me. Thank you.
0: Of course. I mean, like I said, both times you've been on, even this time, you've always been informative and interesting, and you, you do such a great job of putting science in a way the average person can understand it, which is, which is incredibly important. You mentioned your students just quickly. How are your students doing? I mean, during the, the teeth of the pandemic, they, they were in the lab and now you know we're kind of on the other side of it. How, how have things gone with them? Are you seeing more interest in this field from people coming in?
1: You know, it's a double-edged sword, right? It's in many ways the pandemic and the ongoing monkeypox uh, emergency has absolutely placed a a light of visibility on the medical laboratory major, as well as the profession. And so that's been a good thing. It's it's helped us nationally and statewide uh, gain uh, all sorts of important things, including salary and the ability to be understood a little bit better in the healthcare arena but at the same time, Dan, it's been a challenging time. Uh, We already were at really difficult workforce shortages prior to the pandemic, and it really, really hammered our, you know, all of my alumni. I've been teaching for 20 years now, and so I have probably three to 400 alumni out there around Texas and the country that are working, and, you know, it broke my heart to hear from some of these guys that, you know, were putting in you know, seven, 10, 12 day shifts of 12 hours at a time and just cranking and cranking and cranking and truly burning out. And and it has affected us. Uh, We have lost some people to just taking a break. Some people just stepped out and said, I'm done, you know, and that that's scary. And some of the things I write about and you guys know I'm passionate about is this profession and how critical it is. You know, we do about 13 billion tests annually in this country. And about two thirds of those are uh, utilized by physicians for your health and your health care plan from cradle to grave. And so without us, everything stops. And I think the country saw that. You oh, know, for sure. Um, just difficult when you don't have people in the trenches. And I I love all healthcare care professionals, but nothing goes forward without testing because you just don't know how to treat. And so every day I, I still worry about it. I think it's still a national crisis. I'm, I'm, I'm on a national workforce right now with my professional organizations to try to do everything we can to bring in, recruit and retain our individuals out there who have worked their tails off the last two or three years to, to make it you know, something that they don't leave. And so it is, it is a very important topic and you're gonna hear me talking about it often when you cross paths with me, uh, because it's really, really important for the health of the nation.
0: Well, we certainly need people like you to continue to advocate for this. And I I know I can say from the first time that we met in March of 2020 till now, talking with you has really shed a light on healthcare in general and, and what it is that you guys do. Things that, you know, are so far from mine for the average person that. I know that I appreciate it and I'm sure that our audience does as well. So, as always, a wealth of knowledge we could go on for hours with Dr. Rodney Rohde. Thank you so much for joining us once again.
1: Thanks, Dan, and eat them up Catch. Y'all have a great week.
0: And for our audience, thank you very much for listening and downloading this episode of Big Ideas. Until next time, stay well and stay informed.
1: Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke. Strategic
0: consultant is Kelly Raz.